When you become an official minister, you become the official prayer at any gathering that you are a part of. Uh, you know, a lot of us play basketball, but then there are professional basketball players. They, they do it better. So people just assume you're a professional minister. You must be a professional prayer. And sometimes it's awkward. Like I attended a funeral one time where the family had mixed faith. So the funeral service lean towards one of their faiths, but in between the service and the graveside ceremony, some of the family members came to me and said, uh, we want you to say a few words and pray at the graveside. And I was like, I do not want to get into the middle of your family issues, you know. It can be awkward when people ask you to pray, but it's just part of, you know, being a minister. And you learn two vocabulary words pretty quickly, invocation and benediction. The invocation is the prayer at the beginning of the event, and the benediction is the prayer that closes the event. We've been in the book of Hebrews for quite some time now, and finally in Hebrews chapter 13, we're getting to the benediction, a closing prayer. And what I hope to show you today and convince you is that this benediction at the end of Hebrews should be our daily invocation. Or the way you see it in your listening guide, if you were following along and writing some things down, this closing prayer should become our daily prayer. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this closing prayer needs to become our daily prayer. And we come in prayer to God with undivided confidence. We're filled with faith. We see two convincing reasons. First, we know that God is able. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Everything that we are going to ask him today to do for us is easier than it was to bring Jesus back from the dead. We also pray with undivided confidence because God is committed to us. Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. God has made a covenant with us, a commitment to us that will last forever. He has promised that he will hear our prayers. He answers us as one who is committed to us. And here are the three prayers that we want to become daily for us. Number one, you see this in your listening guide. God, equip me to do your will. God, equip me to do your will. It says in verse 21, may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Now, when God asks you to do his will, that will will often be beyond what you are able to do yourself. When God appeared to Moses through the burning bush, he said to Moses, who was a shepherd at the time, had been a shepherd for 40 years, I want you to leave this mountain and go back to Egypt and appear before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and tell him to let his Israelite slaves go. Now Moses had some background in Egypt, but nothing about his current life would have made him believe that this was actually a doable thing. Remember when 5,000 plus people followed Jesus out into the wilderness to listen to his teaching. The disciples began to be concerned about what these people were going to do for dinner. And Jesus said to them, you feed them. 
They had no resources. There were no stores. They had no food to speak of. Jesus asked them to do the impossible. And when he asks us to do his will, it will often be beyond what you and I are able to do ourselves. That's why we need to be equipped. He needs to give us what we need to do his will. The word equip comes with three pictures. The first picture is of a doctor taking a broken bone and setting it right again. The second picture is of a general standing before their army, inspiring them and giving them instructions for the battle. The third picture is of a fisherman mending their nets. And as God asks us to do his will, one of those three things might need to happen in our lives. Some of us may say, I want to do God's will, but I can't right now. I've been broken, crushed, and I need to be made whole again. Some of us might be saying, I want to do God's will, but I, I, I need some inspiration or I need some instruction. I see what he's asking me to do, but I'm not sure how to actually do it. Or we might need to be mended. You've been giving, giving, serving, 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 pouring out over and over and over again, and you just are empty. You were once sharp spiritually, but now you're dull And like that fisherman's net, you need to be mended. We need to be equipped. And to be equipped means to be qualified. I think most of us assume that when God invites us to join him in his work, he lowers the standard to sneak us in. (laughs) But in fact, the opposite is true. His standard is always the same. He just raises us up to it. He gives us what we need to do his will. How many times have we said, I would, but? How many times in your life has God tapped you on the shoulder and said, I want you to be a part of this. I want you to go and do this. I'm sending you here. And you said, I would, but. I would invite my neighbor over for dinner, but. I would mentor a teenager from a Title I school who could use some extra direction in their life. But I would go on a global outreach team to Ecuador or Cuba or Jordan or India or China. But God equips us, raises us up to the level that he desires us to be. He gives us what we need to do his will. And sometimes what he gives us to equip us doesn't make any sense. I mean, it probably didn't make very much sense As God was equipping Joshua and the Israelites to take the fortified city of Jericho and all he gave them were some shouts, some marches, and some trumpets. And yet it was effective. It didn't make any sense when God called out Gideon, just a normal person, and said, Gideon, I want to use you to deliver my people, entire nation, from a huge army of Midianites. And when God was finished equipping Gideon, he only had 300 men. And all they had were some clay pots and a few torches. And yet it was effective. In my early 20s, I was pretty new into ministry. And uh, the thing that terrified me the most was visiting people in the hospital. I had never visited, I had never been to the hospital myself. I had never really visited anybody who wasn't my family member in the hospital. And I was terrified that I was going to walk in and somebody was going to be on their deathbed and I was going to say on accident, how are you doing? You know? 
And so in my early 20s, I was working at a church, and one of the pillars of the church was in the hospital. I had a heart attack, had had some open heart surgery, and was in recovery, but it was still kind of touch and go. It wasn't out of the woods. It was still pretty early on in the hospital stay. My pastor had been going up there consistently. The pastor was very close. I had met this man a few times, but did not have a personal relationship with him. And my pastor called me and said, I want you to go and visit him in the hospital today. I had wished that God had said, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and move to the deepest, darkest underground churches of China. I would have gladly done that than to drive down the street and visit this man in the hospital. And it's not because he wasn't worthy of visiting in the hospital, but I just knew I was going to stick my foot in my mouth and he was going to look at me and say, I'm actually worse now that you came. That was my, <laughs> that was my fear. But I had to go because my boss, my pastor had said, this is what I need you to do. I remember walking into that hospital and this is, my senses were all on alert because I was so nervous. You smell the smells and you hear all the sounds. And really what I was praying as I was riding up the elevator is that his door would be shut and I would be able to say he was resting and I didn't want to disturb him. You know, so it was a, it was a win-win. I, I was able to go and yet not do anything. But no, his door was wide open and I stepped through and it wasn't a disaster. God equipped me. He gave me what I need to do his will. See, if God has asked you, God will enable you. You don't have to worry about it ahead of time. All we need to figure out is, God, what are you asking me to do? Then he'll take care of the rest. This is our daily prayer. God, give me what I need to do your will. Number two, God, work in me that which pleases you. Work in me that which pleases you. Now may the God of peace, verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do as will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a huge debate about guns in our country right now. Don't worry, I'm not going to weigh in right now. But I did weigh in, in my home and with my friends, and you weighed in too. I'm sure you have your opinions. We're not going to talk about those right now, but I'm sure you've weighed in on what you think is the right thing to do. And I wonder, I just, just, just ask this rhetorically, how many of us, including myself, before we weighed in said, God, what would please you? This debate about guns in the United States of America, in Houston, Texas, God, what would please you? I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself. I didn't ask. I just weighed in. You may say, well, what, is, what does God have to do with a debate like that? And if that's what you're saying, I'm guessing your faith is not working for you. I'm guessing that all it is is come to church, check, some, check a box, hope it was good. doesn't really matter if it was. Because everything has everything to do with God. There is no debate, there is no issue, there is nothing that happens to us that should not first start with the question, God, what would please you? God, what would please you as I interact with people who are of a different race than me? God, what would please you as I interact with people who are at a different economic standard than I live in? God, what would please you about the way that I interact with immigrants who are new to America? God, what would please you about the way that we order our home? God, what would please you about the way that we spend our money? God, would 
What would please you with what we're going to do on vacation? God, what would please you about where we go to school? There is nothing that we do that should not first start with the question, God, what would please you? But most of us are not asking that because we are afraid that he might say something that we disagree with. I mean, that's what happened to Jonah. God said to Jonah, go and preach to the Ninevites and tell them to repent. And you remember Jonah, he ran in the opposite direction. He was supposed to go east and he went west. He got on a boat, tried to sail across the ocean to get away. And my whole life, I grew up in church, my whole life, I thought that Jonah ran from that calling because he was scared about what would happen to him when he got to Nineveh and he preached to these mighty Ninevites in their massive city, repent, 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 that they would take him, they would throw him in jail, maybe worse, they, they might kill him. My whole life, I thought that's why he ran away. He was afraid of what would happen to him. But as you read the book of Jonah, you find out the reason he ran is because he was prejudiced. He did not want the Ninevites to repent. He didn't want the thing that God wanted. But you remember how his story went. He tried to run away, and the fish swallowed him up, spit him back on dry land. Then he eventually did go to Nineveh, and, and he preached, and they repented. They didn't eat for days. They took off all of their fancy clothes they put on sackcloth. They poured ashes on their head from the king all the way down to the bottom. And you, you remember how the story ends? It ends with the Ninevites repenting and doing exactly what God wanted, and yet Jonah is pouting outside the city because he still disagreed with God. See, here's the thing. When you and I disagree with God, it does not stop God. He does what he pleases. He does it when he pleases. When we disagree with him, All it steals from us is the joy of watching him do what pleases him. So that's why we should start with, God, what do you want? Everybody I know in my life is skiing in Colorado right now. (laughs) And it's driving me crazy. Every week, a new set of families head off to the snowy slopes of Colorado. And here we are in Houston. If you've been skiing before, you know how fun it is. You know why people go. Uh, And you understand the metaphor that people say pretty often, uh, he was over his skis. And it works for snow skiing. It also works for water skiing, if any of you are those kinds of people. The idea is that sometimes when you're skiing, your weight gets discombobulated and you lean too far forward. You lean out over your skis and your weight is not properly distributed and you fall down. So if somebody's saying he's over his skis, it means that person's getting ready to crash. That person's getting ready to fall. And I think a lot of us experience that when it comes to doing the will of God, doing what pleases God, is we get out over our skis. We decide ahead of time what would please us. We lean forward too much. Then when God tells us what would please him, we have to disagree with him. And it's too late for us because we've already leaned into the thing that we want to do. But we need to adopt the attitude of Jesus. If you have your Bible open, turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, Jesus is saying some pretty unconventional and difficult truths. In fact, at the end of this chapter, it's going to say that many of his disciples, not just a random group of people in a crowd, but many of his disciples decided to no longer be disciples. This is his word in verse 38. 
of John chapter 6. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus, the eternal son of God, who was not created, who has always been. And he says, while I'm here on earth, I have one objective, and that is to do the will of God. Think how much simpler our lives would be if we embraced that motto. I mean, think about how less you would fight in your marriage if right as you started to get tense, you just both said, hey, we have one objective, and that's to do what God wants us to do. Now let's talk about it. I mean, think how much better of a church we would be if we just all said, I don't care. I just want to do what God wants us to do. Think about how much more you would enjoy your job if you just went to work and you're like, I just want to do the will of God while I'm here at work. Think about how less complicated your money would be if every time you checked your bank account, you're like, I just want to do the will of God with this money. I'm not out over my skis. I haven't already decided what would please me and hope that it ends up pleasing him. But God has to work in us because the truth is, is often I'm more like Jonah than I am Jesus. I've already made up my mind what I want to happen. Sometimes growing up in church, I felt like the summary message was read your Bible and try hard. Sometimes that's not enough. Often, trying hard is not enough. That's why it says that God will work in us what pleases him. It's beyond just willing ourselves. God, we need your supernatural power to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's why it's a prayer that we start our day with. God, work in me what pleases you. And finally, God, may my life glorify Jesus forever. Now may the God of peace, verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't think you can talk about the glory of Jesus effectively without talking about John the Baptist. If you remember, John the Baptist was sent by God to prepare people's hearts and minds and lives to be ready for Jesus. And so he came a few years ahead of Jesus, just a few seasons before Jesus' public ministry. And at the peak of his popularity, the scripture says that all of Judea and Jerusalem was coming out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, Billy Graham's funeral was on Friday, and Billy Graham would preach to more people the gospel of Jesus than any person who has ever lived. But it would be like saying every person who lives east of the Mississippi, went to a Billy Graham crusade. A lot of people went to Billy Graham crusades, but not even Billy Graham could say that half of the United States came to one of my crusades, but that John the Baptist could. All of Judea, that's the southern half of Israel. All of Jerusalem, that's the population center, the capital city of Israel. They all came out, the scripture said, to see John the Baptist and be baptized by him. And at the peak of his popularity... Jesus comes to be baptized himself. And you may remember what John the Baptist said when that happened. Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says about Jesus, I'm not, will, I'm not worthy to unstrap his sandal. So at the peak of his popularity, he's saying, no, Jesus deserves the glory. But then something shifts after Jesus kind of shows up onto the scene. You can read about it in John chapter 3. Verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So something shifts. People used to be coming to see John the Baptist. People used to be coming to experience his ministry, but now Jesus is here, and the disciples of John the Baptist go, we're the minor leagues. We used to be the major leagues, and now we're the minor leagues because everybody that used to be coming to us, now they're all going to him, and they want John to do something about it to fix it, to maybe have a better marketing system, to you know, maybe just remind everybody about how great he was and them along with him. And John takes that opportunity to say, no, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm just the groomsman. He is the groom. I'm just the forerunner. He is the main event. He needs to increase and I need to decrease. So what we see in John is that his highest, he was saying, all glory to Jesus, and at his lowest, all glory to Jesus. And both things need to happen for us. When things are going really well, when money is flowing, when your kids are saying yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, to you and to everybody they meet, when they are bringing home medals of honor in sports and academics, the great Cyprus duo that we're all praying for. (laughs) When you're getting promoted at work, when you're getting to upgrade everything in your life, it is an opportunity to say, behold, the Lamb of God. And when the opposite happens to you, When you're not getting promoted, but you're getting laid off. When your kids aren't bringing home any medals or trophies. When you're going through one of those seasons where it seems like they're more disrespectful than they are respectful. When your marriage isn't anything to brag about. Where everything about you feels numb and low and without. It is an opportunity to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus is worthy of both. He's worthy of increase in both. We know that because of how Hebrews starts. Hebrews chapter one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you remember some months ago, we started the book of Hebrews by, with me asking you a very simple question. If God pulled up a chair and said to you, I want to have a knee-to-knee, eye-to-eye conversation with you, what do you think God would say? And at the end of that message, I said, I'm convinced that if he did have a knee-to-knee conversation with you, He wouldn't tell you about how awful you were. He would tell you about Jesus, who is the radiance of his glory, who is the exact imprint of his nature, who is the purifier of sinners, who upholds God's creation by the word of his power. This is why our lives need to glorify Jesus forever, because Jesus is worthy of glory forever. So that's why we make it our daily prayer. This benediction has to be our invocation. Closing prayer becomes our morning prayer. God, give me what I need to do your will. Work in me what pleases you. And let Jesus get all the glory from all of my life forever. Let's pray. So God, we pray those things. Give us what we need. Work in us. Jesus, be glorified. Amen.